We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Nicola Smith, a freelance journalist based here in Taipei. Good evening. Thanks for having me. And New Bloom's Brian Hugh. Good evening. Tonight, we discuss passage of a controversial transitional justice bill, amendments to mining laws, moves to rid Taipei of illegal structures, the need for more foreign direct investment, and a very, very long-lasting rainbow. But sadly, we have to begin with more on the labour law, and that began this week here in Taipei on Monday, with rowdy scenes both inside and outside the Legislative UN, as members of the Legislature's Economics Committee and its Social Welfare and Environmental Hygiene committee managed to pass a review of the proposed amendments to the Labour Standards Act. And I, of course, I should have said the amendments to the amendments of the Labour Standards Act there. Now, protesters scuffled with police and lawmakers scuffled with, well, lawmakers. But the amendments were still rammed through by the DPP after a mammoth 13-hour committee meeting. And predictably enough, not everyone is happy. Opposition lawmakers are accusing the DPP of failing to observe legislative procedures during the review because lawmakers were not allowed time enough to review all eight revisions. Now, they managed to review a couple of these revisions, though, before the DPP passed the last six revisions in the amendment as a package. There you go, they did as a package. In effect, ramming them through the committee without discussion of those six revisions. Now, the measures will now be sent for cross-party talks, which could last up to a month, so we'll probably be talking about this issue again. Now, they have to go to these cross-party consultations before they can be brought to the legislature for a full vote. Now, the DPP has said it wants the new workweek laws to be put into effect early next year and is seeking passage of the bill by December the 31st, which is very, very unlikely to happen. Now, the presidential office is backing the DPP and also denying reports of sharp divisions between the DPP and the cabinet and various other government agencies in regards to the amended laws. Business leaders, though, well, they're voicing their support for the move, with the National Association of Industry and Commerce saying that its members expect the relationship between management and workers to improve thanks to these new amendments of the amendments. And the General Chamber of Commerce says that the amendments are a step in the right direction but it's still hoping for more flexibility to overtime working hours. Now of course there was protests outside the Legislative UN as I said. Now of course one of these commerce groups has said that these protesters didn't represent a majority of Taiwan's workforce. So, Brian, do you think these protesters represented a majority of Taiwan's workforce? Or, as the Commerce Chamber executive was hinting at, they're a minority who don't like this new bill. Um, I mean, it's the same group of people that's been protesting labor policy since last year until this year. So the more militant or more active labor unions are out there demonstrating. And I think it's not surprising that, you know, not every labor union is going to take action on this issue. Um, at the same time, you know, this is based on the ferocity of the protests that we've seen to date, in which a small amount of people have, you know, kept at it for a while. I think this is actually a sign because, you know, compared to even last year, the protests are much stronger this year. It's a sign that, you know, when these uh, reforms are passed, this might actually be incredibly provocative of Taiwanese labor. Um, it might actually spur into action, you know, groups that aren't currently taking action. 
And what about the scenes inside the legislative UN, Nicola, where filibusting went down, pushing and shoving went down, but there was no missiles fired, those missiles being flower, which have been fired before. Well, that's a shame. It's always colourful when things go flying around. Um, I, I, I mean, I think that politicians need to grow up a bit, don't they? If... They're the ones who are supposed to be setting the example and showing leadership. And it's no sign of leadership if you're pushing and shoving people and uh, filibustering. It's it's just a very... um, lame way of trying to to govern. I mean, you you have to say your piece, make it short, concise, but just stop trying to like hold up some very important legislation by by using that kind of tactic. Um I think they just need to get down to work and actually try and be constructive about it. Of course, one of the issues on Monday of this week when they had the committee meeting was how long each lawmaker would get to talk. Now the DPP turned around and said, "Well, we we think everyone should have six minutes to which the opposition said hang on six minutes is not enough so brian do you think six minutes is enough for lawmakers to actually vent their frustration vent their support or talk about their opposition to things um they're trying to prevent a filibuster as occurred on november 23rd um because the kmt was able to pass a a motion to have unlimited discussion of the bill which which allowed for the the discussion to drag on for so long and the dpp is really trying to prevent that from this time um actually last time this demonstrated the fact that the dpp doesn't have all the legislatures on board because of the fact that this motion was allowed to pass. It was because some legislators were not present at the meeting. So the DPP does not want to have this kind of spectacle again in which a legislator is allowed to filibuster the bill and, and drum up public anger or at least attract public attention in that way. Right. And of course, the Premier was forced to come out and deny there was any split. But then two days later, he said, oh, well, maybe I'll ask the Labour ministry to do a poll about this. Do you think this is all a bit late? I certainly think it's too late to be doing a poll. They just uh, they just need to get on with things, um, you know, make some decisions, try and find some compromise. At the end of the day, um, not everyone's going to be happy with this, but you have to find the balance between protecting workers' rights and also uh, protecting companies, because if companies are, are forced to close because the, the laws are too strict, then that's not going to help anyone either. So I think politicians need to stop um, wasting time um, six minutes is almost too long for some politicians to talk. I mean, they just need to get to the point and get down to business. Right. What about the comment by the Association of Industry and Commerce? And they said that the relationship between management and workers will improve. Do you see the management and workers relationship improving because of this new bill? Well, I hope it will. Um, I mean, it certainly gives them uh, some kind of clarity on certain issues. Um, it gives them a point from which they can they can be more open about working hours and overtime, um, and you know have have that kind of clear conversation. Um, I mean, it, it's hard to say. Uh, generally whether laws help relations between management and and employees. I think that just comes down to, on a case-by-case business, to how uh, companies want to treat their staff. I mean, I think that Taiwanese workers already work the fourth longest working hours in the world, and you know, the, the new labor bill will actually lower the... Uh, you know, it lowers the time between shifts to up to only eight hours, which is not enough time for even a night's rest. Um, that 
you know, because of that reason, I, this probably will worsen, I think, the relation between labor and management. Um, and based on the activity of the protests that have been seen to date, that this is getting attention, I think it could lead to a wave of unionization in industries that have not previously seen that, because all this really follows on the heels of the China Airlines um, strike last year, after which business leaders kind of drew in a line of the sand and said that we're not going to go beyond a certain point in terms of negotiations. And so this, this might seek, you know, uh, currently not organized laborers uh, to seek unionization, I, I believe. Which could lead to more problems, of course. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I think that this will lead to probably more conflict. Um, I, I don't know if, if big business can really convince laborers on this issue. Um, the DPP is, is also, I think, that not really handling it too well in terms of trying to force the issue through. It's a real question what will come through cross-party talks, because the KMT probably would not be so opposed to this bill under different circumstances if it was the ruling party. Um, However, you know, cross-party talks will allow for marginalization of smaller parties such as the MPP, which have been pretty firm in resistance to the bill. And there we'll move on. But like I said, we'll get back to that at a later date, unfortunately. Anyway, lawmakers, 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 <laughs> I should be saying, passed a transitional justice bill this week, which, again, they didn't all agree on, but it went through anyway. And the Act on Promoting Transitional Justice paves the way for fresh investigations into alleged injustices that occurred under decades of KMT single-party rule. The Act addresses issues from between August the 15th, 1945, when the Japanese government surrendered to November the 6th, 1992, when martial law on Jingmen and Matsu ended. Of course, that followed the lifting of martial law on Taiwan proper in July of 1987. The bill is, of course, one of President Tsai Ing-wen's main campaign promises. But the KMT, of course, opposes the bill, saying it solely targets the party and fails to address injustices committed during the Japanese colonial period. And several Aboriginal lawmakers have also been critical of the new law, arguing that it doesn't require Require the government to give up ownership of Aboriginal lands once held by the Japanese colonial government. Now, there have also been allegations and reports that the bill will see the government renaming roads and schools that are named after Chiang Kai shek and removing the late ROC president's image from the island's currency. Now, of course, the cabinet is denying those charges, with spokesman Xu Guoyong telling reporters that such claims are simply attempts by certain individuals and groups to divide the public on the matter. And he said that the new law is aimed at bringing about reconciliation, not creating more divisions. Now, the Cabinet is now required to establish an ad hoc committee to implement the retrieval of political archives held by the KMT and also produce a report on the history of the period. And sadly, that's not going to happen for at least two years. Now, Premier William Lai has said that any changes in regards images, statues or buildings that carry, bear or are named after Chiang Kai-shek will be up to the committee to decide. So, Brian, do you see our currency being changed, statues of Chiang Kai-shek being removed, and roads renamed? Um, this is a sort of issue for this administration, because it's a question how far it can actually go with this. If it does go too far, then that does, you know... That does open it to the charge of, uh, of political persecution or attempting to change everything about Taiwanese society very quickly. Uh, China, at the same time, would actually take that as part of DPP attempts at de Taiwan and take that as a provocation. Um, so it is actually linked to cross-strait issues in a way. It's not only a domestic issue regarding Taiwan's history or, or what has happened within Taiwan within the past 100 years or so, but it actually it, it is a very salient current political issue. Um, this, opens, this would open, if, if the time administration takes it too far, this it opens it up for KMT attacks in a very easy way. So we might be conservative on this. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't see how this can be construed really as political persecution. It's historical fact. And the fact is that, you know, um, a lot of injustices during the martial law just haven't been addressed. You're talking about over 100,000 people went to jail, thousands were executed or, or killed. Um, that's political persecution. So I think, you know, for, for the KMT to... Um, to oppose any kind of justice for families or to even address the issue and face up to that um, difficult history, I think, is a, a sign of political immaturity and also political opportuni or opportunism because they're, they're saying that, uh, you know, uh, the DPP is using this to, the, to their advantage for the local elections next year. But, you know, this is, this is something that has gone on for decades. There's lots of families who are still hurting after the martial law period and I would say that it's the KMT who are trying to make a political opportunity out of this and just not facing up to, to what's gone on in the past. But of course the KMT say that starting 1945 when the Japanese government surrendered, of course following the Second World War, ceding Taiwan back to what was the Republic of China, the government should go further and also prosecute Japanese injustices in Taiwan like the comfort women. And, of course, the Taiwan nationals or the ROC, the Taiwan nationals at the time, sorry, who were drafted into the Japanese army. Do you think that the government should go back further than 1945? Well, again, why did the KMT not address that issue when they were in office? I mean, if it's something that they feel so strongly about, they were in government for, for many years. Why didn't they do something then? Um, I mean, yes, uh, I, I don't see a problem in looking at those issues, but maybe take things you know one issue at a time um the martial law period was a, a very long time in taiwanese history there's a lot there that needs to be sorted out and addressed and and looking also at the japanese colonial period would i guess muddy the waters um and and dilute what needs to be done about the martial law period you know maybe that's something for the future but um i don't I also don't really see the equivalence between um, the Japanese colonial period and a time um, and martial law when hundreds of thousands of people were imprisoned and thousands were, were killed. Um, it's not surprising that the KMT is trying to distract from its own crimes by raising the history of the Japanese colonial period. Its accusation against the DPP is always that the DPP is too pro-Japanese and you know it has it has sold out something about Chinese nationalism and so it wants to return to you know only targeting the the Japanese colonial period. Uh, it's not surprising that you know the, that the the KMT is like, attempting to avoid the issue once again. Uh, the real question though is the DPP does actually face some challenges. There are a lot of people in Taiwanese society that have not thought about these issues because they were not taught in schools for so long. And seeing a lot of these things that are thought to represent the nation change, that could actually lead to some questioning of the DPP. Um, it's one of the unfortunate things, I think, about the fact that authoritarian education still continues to some extent within Taiwan. Of course, changing the money would cost a lot of money if they were to change the, all the money and remove Chiang Kai-shek's face from it. How much would it cost? I have no idea. <laughs> a few bob. <laughs> um, I mean, do you yeah, think it's a I viable mean, uh, thing for the government to do, that? Like change all the money? Well, I think that's probably lower on the list of priorities, um, you know, when it comes to dealing with with um, the horrors of the past. I, I think what people are looking for more is... is um, 
just justice for their families and some recognition of the suffering that they went through. I mean, I, I, I don't think they would hang all their hopes in changing dollar bills. Um, and I don't really know how much it would cost uh, or, or how the public would feel about that. Um, but there's, there's certainly other things that you can focus on. And Brian, you mentioned China. I mean, do you think China would get uppity? It certainly would, because of just this strange fixation on using Chiang Kai-shek, which, who was at war with China for so long, as a way to bind uh, Taiwan to China. With that regard, you know, China does attempt to paint the, the DPP as just lashing out at specters with regards to Taiwanese independence, or trying to realize that. So, you know, changing the money for people that are not aware of this kind of history could be, it, it can play this up as, as a way to, to state that the DPP is trying to slowly, slowly move towards Taiwanese independence. I think it's more likely the DPP will go after visible symbols that have been debated in pre- recent years, such as the statues. Uh, with money, it's, it's a little less likely, because that would be quite wide-reaching and... That also raises questions with regards to the ROC framework, if the DPP wants to break from it or not, which the Thai administration really does not want to, but changing the money would be seen as a large step, and that would raise a lot of questions about should it go the whole way of trying to break with the ROC as a whole. Of course, one of the other quandaries here is what do the military do? Because the military bases, of course, have statues of Chiang Kai-shek. They have photographs of Chiang Kai-shek. If the Chiang Kai-shek is removed from all the military bases, who do they put there? And then who is the army beholden to? Taiwan or the Republic of China? This would be a tricky issue for the Ministry of Defence to address. That raises a lot of issues. The ROC military is traditionally seen as a bastion of uh, ROC nationalism. The DPP is quite wary of that times um, with regards to offending the military. Some perceive this as why DPP administrations have actually not been willing to relinquish claims over, for example, the Senkaku slash Diaorutai islands. But yes, it is a question, and it yeah. does require a lot of thinking as to what in a more pro-Taiwan or more localized uh, vision of the nation would be. And sometimes that has not actually been thought out with regards to the military or the government or economy even. I think, I mean, I think that's also um, one of the purposes of this transitional justice bill, that it's actually starting to... Um, it doesn't have all the answers yet, but it's actually starting to look at what needs to be addressed. And and from my impression of being here a y- just a year is that um, that that people haven't had the chance to have that public discussion about you know quite a recent past and about atrocities that occurred during that. And and every country has to have that that discussion. And and there aren't any easy answers, um, but at least bring things out in the open because if you bury them in the past and they're not going to go away. It just hangs like a cloud over the national mood. And you know, other countries have been forced to face up to to horrible things that have happened in their history, like you know, South Africa, um, Northern Ireland, and maybe there's something that Taiwan can just draw from uh, from how other countries have dealt with that. Right, and of course the report will take two years. So there you go, it's not going to happen overnight <laughs> anyway. Anyway, finally, in this half of the show, the Cabinet this week approved a draft amendment to the Mining Act as the government seeks to tackle regulatory problems with the mining sector that have allowed companies to avoid laws governing environmental impact assessments and Indigenous peoples' rights. Now, the planned bill will require mining projects that have produced more than 50,000 tonnes of ore on average each year for the past five years to undergo stricter environmental impact reviews. Now, that will cover six sites in Taiwan. Unfortunately, there are 66 Six quite large mining sites in Taiwan and the other 60 produce less than 50,000 tonnes of ore a year and they'll be required to go through a less strict review process. So is this fair? It doesn't sound like it's fair. (laughs) 
Um, I mean, I think it should it should be surely environmental standards should be applied across the board, no matter what size size the mine. It has the same impact. It's one of those unusual things because a lot of these mines have such a history that they predate modern regulations or modern environmental uh, assessments, and somehow this has become that these mines are now exempt from this. It's, it's quite unusual. It's like to me, it's almost like you've discovered a disease that you weren't aware of in the past, but because it because you know you weren't aware of it in the past, you just don't want to treat it. Um, it's unusual, and I think it does point to the power of a lot of industrial groups or mining groups regarding uh, the government, because they do have a, a large say in, in key aspects of the Taiwanese economy. Right, of course, the bill also required the companies to obtain permission from local Aboriginal communities before any mining can be carried out on tribal lands and also to share any financial benefits with them. Unfortunately, and there's a big unfortunately here, if we haven't had enough, unfortunately is enough. The reason these laws are being brought in is because of a mine owned by Asia Cement in Hualien County. Now, the Xinjiang Shan mine is apparently going to be exempt from these laws, even though it's on Aboriginal land. That, that's one of the most controversial mines. Uh, and so it is actually somewhat strange that that is the mine which is exempt. I like the way they said it was exempt because it renewed its license earlier this year. Oh, and how did it know to renew its license earlier this year? Maybe that's a conspiracy theory that was, that was for another show. That's controversial because because uh, indigenous groups were protesting the fact that its license was likely to be renewed. And actually, it was allowed to avoid some of the regulations through the renewal of its license because that license, again, predated modern standards. Well, it reviewed... It- it avoided all the things, didn't it? It avoided even an impact assessment report. Exactly, which is incredibly bizarre. <laughs> I, th- I think in all of these things, you know, not just Ignorance in Taiwan, <laughs> it's, it, often it's big business tends to win over the rights of um, local people. Um, it seems to be a pattern mm-hmm. that, that that is repeated across the world. It's quite unfortunate, yeah. There has been protests about it, but I don't, don't think that is large enough to affect public opinion at present. If you don't live in that area, you're not going to be affected, likely. That's true. One of the statistics that came out with this, apparently Taiwan has issued 228 mining permits have been issued island-wide over the many, many years. Now, only 28 of these projects have actually passed environmental impact assessments. It's quite frightening. Uh, it's something that environmental groups have pointed to for years, but mobilising the public over it is, is quite difficult. Yeah, I guess it's not in your backyard. You don't really know about it, do you? How about a mine in your back garden? Yeah, I, I wouldn't like that very much. <laughs> I'd be out with my little placards, sit down protests. Yeah, well, I, you know what? It's, people can keep mining and mining, and then what happens to Taiwan in the end? Everyone's going to end up suffering if, if we don't... If we don't implement environmental mm-hmm. protection. Mm-hmm. So. Right. On that grim note, we'll take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and we'll begin this half of the show with two deadly fires in two weeks, which have led to calls in both Taipei and New Taipei for the local governments to tear down illegal rooftop structures and and also building modifications. Now, a fire that ripped through a partition department in New Taipei's Zhonghe district late last month left nine people dead, while a fire that gutted a similar apartment in Taipei this Wednesday left one person dead. Now, reports have claimed that there are over 200,000 
thousand illegal and possibly dangerous rooftop structures, illegal extensions and building modifications across the greater Taipei area. And Taipei Mayor Kerwin just said this week that at least 25,000 of them are in the capital alone. Now, he's considering abolishing regulations that have allowed illegal structures built before 1995 to be registered and exempted from demolition. The new Taipei city government has also vowed to take action against illegal rooftop structures and building modifications, while Interior Minister Ye Junrong said that the Building Act could be amended in the future to enable both the central and local governments to deal with the problem more comprehensively. Now, of course, there's been a wave of these fires in these illegal structures over the past several... Not just two. We've had two deadly ones in two weeks. But, of course, you turn on the television virtually once a week and there'll be an illegal structure burning down somewhere on the island. That's right, except once in a while it becomes something that is discussed by the public. It's a long-standing issue of, of housing that we do have a lot of illegal structures basically everywhere. You just go around in an urban area and you can just point to them, really. So mayors have vowed to take action on this for a while, and Kobunch in particular had, had stated that he would, uh, would demolish rooftop structures, uh, you know, d- ding lows. But then he kind of received criticism for that because it was wide-sweeping and would cause a lot of disruption, and he kind of backed off on the idea. But now the idea is back, so... That was a compensation issue, of course, because when, when Mayor Kerr first took office, he said, I'm going to tackle these illegal structures, and then someone raised the issue of compensation. So, Nicola, do you think that landlords that built illegal structures on buildings should be compensated, or should the poor tenants of the building that get shoved out with nowhere to live be compensated by the landlords? Yeah, I don't think the landlords deserve compensation if they broke the law. But it's not the fault of the tenants if they, they didn't know that. Um, you know, they're not responsible for that. So maybe, you know, they would be more eligible for compensation. But surely there's another way to, to an easier way to look at it rather than just demolishing all of these homes. Because clearly, like, there is a need for homes in, in Taipei and across Taiwan. Um, for affordable homes, isn't there just a better way to regulate it? And you know, for anyone who has one of these illegal structures, to to be able to somehow register that and bring it up to proper health and safety standards. And if it doesn't, then it has to go. Well, then we go back to the partition departments or the taofeng, the, the suites, the studios, whatever you want to call them. <laughs> of course, lots of these apartments are regular size apartments, two, two three-bedroom apartments, one bathroom, one kitchen, one living room. And in Taiwan, they're divided up with wooden partition walls, which, of course, these two recent fires gutted two of these such apartment blocks because the walls were made of wood. And, of course, none of these apartments had fire safety checks. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely something that has to be addressed. And, and you know, look at what happened in Lon- London in, at Grenfell, um, that building that, that just went up in flames. And now the government is belatedly taking action and, and checking other buildings. And that, that is something that needs to be done. And you just can't, you can't shirk that. You can't find a shortcut. You just have to have the authorities... Um, mandated to check that buildings are safe otherwise you are going to have a disaster Um, it's going to be more than one or two people killed and there's various simple things that you can do as well I mean you know just it's not difficult to put in a smoke alarm or a fire alarm or to have some kind of building procedure as well I mean these these things take minutes to do they're cheap and they could save a lot of lives then of course we go back to the renting of these apartments and of course most landlords don't claim don't pay tax on the rents which is another big issue because if you're a landlord you divide up your apartment into 10 15 rooms in fact one of the one of these buildings that burnt down had 17 
15 rooms in one apartment. Of course, you're renting these rooms out and you're not paying tax on it. So they, the government then have to find you. So do you hmm. think the government can do this in Taipei? or is this, is, Do you think the Taipei city government should do this or do you think the central government should step in? It's hard to say as to which would be more effective. Uh, if so, it would very quickly caught up, be caught up between local politics versus central politics in terms of how much autonomy mayors have versus the central government stepping in over their authority. Uh, it is quite easy to find these these structures that violate housing regulations. They're basically everywhere. And so it actually would, con- it would be easy to find them, but it would be a considerable investment of resources to actually root out all of them. Uh, believe it or not, I actually lived in a Taofang once where that had no windows. And this was actually not the first one that I saw in my housing search. So this kind of thing is very common. If you just look around, it, it's quite easy to see. Uh, it's, it's one of the things that has to do with housing practices in Taiwan have existed for a long time. And so rooting that out is, is quite difficult. Um, between that, there is also the companies that manage uh, properties for, for landlords. And that, that's another industry that is quite large. Uh, and would be difficult tackling. I think they need to have greater penalties for landlords to do that because not only is it a health and safety hazard um, and potentially lethal, but they're also evading taxes. I mean, they're breaking the law. So, you know, maybe start cracking down a bit more on some of these rogue landlords, make an example of one or two. And and also just, it sounds like this this city just needs more building inspectors as well, just to get out there and, and, and start kind of <clears throat> getting a grip on the scale of this. In that respect, though, it does return to socioeconomics because it is such a widespread problem and there, there are issues of affordable housing across Taiwan. And if there's the situation in which housing inspectors are going around and, and basically reporting on the affordable places to live or which, are, which, which maybe people that can't afford other homes are living in, that could lead to other problems. And that would probably raise uh, social anger from that – that, that would lead to anger from some parts of society, as a result of which that might affect the, the popularity of mayors. Um, so it's a question, actually, how much mayor is seeking, particularly mayor is seeking re-election, would try to rock the boat on the issue. It does actually stand to damage reputations, even if they are acting in, for long-term safety um, of the city. Well, sure, surely it's the mayor's job, though, to <laughs> to create affordable housing, or mm-hmm. the government's job, a combination of both, so that you don't have a situation where people, just to have an affordable apartment, are living in a fire trap by a rogue landlord who's just, you know, kind of milking it and, and earning loads of money that's tax-free, not contributing anything to the economy. I mean, you can't just turn and look the other way and say, oh, well, if we if we send building inspectors around, that's going to mean less affordable housing. Find a different solution. That's, that's one of the ironies of democracy, I think, because long-term solutions sometimes lead to unpopularity for mayors because of the fact that that presents disruption to the lives of everyday people. Even if that is for long-term good, that sometimes does not appear that way to people. I think I think there's, it's a difficult issue to solve. What about the tenants themselves, though? I mean, you said you lived in one of these Taofeng apartments, Brian. I mean, you're obviously in a fire safety hazard in that one with no windows. Yeah? I mean, did, <laughs> it was interesting. Did, did you contemplate actually ringing someone and telling them that the landlord might be breaking the law? I think most people are aware of that. And that really, that was just an unfortunate situation I, I ended up in because of uh, having to move house quite quickly. But everybody in the, the building was aware of that and nobody took action. So that, that does point to, I think, how entrenched it is. Uh, particularly the people that live in these kind of Particularly in, in Taofang, the kind of you know separated apartments, the people that live in them tend to be young office workers or workers of different sorts or students or people like that. Um, people that are, are can't afford homes or of their own or or, or generally face issues of, uh, with rent 
Um, I think I think at that points kind of the structural roots of the issue. So they're very unlikely to complain. They're just happy to have a place to exactly. live, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the government just needs to take a look at itself as to why the situation has has come up and like why are young professionals <laughs> not able to afford rent. I mean, it's one thing owning a house is one thing um, just being able to pay your rent, and if they're working. You know, if they're working in kind of <laughs> professional jobs, it's it's to the shame of the government that that there's not enough affordable housing for people like that. Right. On a passing note, there, the landlord of one of these buildings that caught fire is now facing charges of negligence resulting in death. Anyway, looking at some business news now. Well, the Premier this week has urged the government to focus its efforts on attracting more foreign investments to Taiwan by relaxing regulations, promoting industrial innovation and upgrading domestic industries. That's a bit of a mouthful. Basically, what that means is Taiwan's Foreign Direct Investment, or FDI, is apparently lower than the global average. Now, Lies says that an expedited and transparent amendment of laws will simplify the FDI application process and the Ministry of Economic Affairs is currently in the process of drafting amendments to the Statute for Investment by Overseas Chinese and the Statute for Investment by Foreign Nationals, all of which is hoped will attract more investment in Taiwan. So, Brian, foreign direct investment, not enough of it. We need more. How are the government going to get it? <laughs> it's it's another, one of the uh, the big problems facing the Thai administration, how to pursue the international world in terms of building ties between the international world and Taiwan, whether that is having Taiwanese trade go out from Taiwan and, and build connections and develop new markets, or whether that is having investment go into Taiwan. And that is the issue that the Thai administration just, I think, is not able to have any any one-shot solution to right now. Um, again, you know, there's the, the claim that Taiwan is falling behind global standards and that Taiwan must meet international standards if it is to survive. But how to have a, a kind of a plan that can really adjust the, the situation, the fundamental situation of Taiwan, that's, that's much harder. Yeah, I mean, the Tsai administration does have a problem in that um, a lot of young people are leaving um, and going abroad because they they don't have the same job opportunities here. Um, And foreign direct investment would certainly help with that. So it should be a priority. I mean, I'm not an economic expert, so I can't really advise them on how to do that. Um, but you know, from what I've heard anecdotally, is that there, there is a lot of regulation that that uh, companies face when they try to set up here, um, and you know, just from speaking to some young people as well who who've been keen to to um, try startups, then they've said that that actually here it's, it's very difficult to do it. It's there's there's less financial incentives, there's less tax breaks, um, and it's it's easier to do it say somewhere like China. Um, so. Yeah, it does seem that, that Taiwan does does have a regulation or a heavy regulation problem. Of course, these regulations are brought up on a monthly basis by all the <laughs> chambers, of course. The American chamber, the European chamber, the blah, blah chamber. They always talk about these regulations hampering investment from their countries. Sometimes I'm surprised at the voices which aren't heard because there is a lot of talk of of connecting with the international world or or developing these kind of ties. But when they do exist in Taiwan sometimes, or where, where there is a foundation to develop such ties in Taiwan, sometimes that, that voice just isn't heard. Um, in particular, I think Taiwan has a lot of infrastructure issues, that there are a lot of particulars to how Taiwan conducts business. And to actually link up with the international world, you do have to change some practices. Uh, for example, with regards to e-commerce, a lot of the for example, most b- banks don't support PayPal. Uh, that, that's quite huge for a lot of businesses, particularly ones that are startups or online startups or do some form of e-commerce. That's quite necessary if you're to do business with the international world. 
it, it's surprising sometimes that there isn't that that desire to change things because sometimes things get sometimes there, there's not the will to make these fundamental reforms of how Taiwan conducts business in order to actually attract business. And it's just all talk, really. I think also the, the government. I mean, it's like any government, but they sometimes fall hostage to certain interest groups that are blocking progress um, towards FDI. Um, I mean, it's perhaps not a very good example, but when when Uber was start trying to um, set up here, I complaint that they had was that Taiwan's trying to be the Silicon Valley of Asia, but they're not embracing new technology. And there were multiple issues with with Uber, but um, <clears throat> but they, you know, again, it was a question of regulation, heavy regulation, and and not um, trying to find or not finding. Um, a way around the issues that that presented and kind of coming into the modern era, really. Right. And then we shall leave the modern era because we'll go back to where we are now and wait for these regulations to be relaxed. Now, Taiwan made global news this week. Now, it wasn't for deaths. It wasn't for (laughs) anything nasty. It was for a rainbow, a colourful rainbow that stuck around for a rather long time. Now, Taipei is hoping to unseat Weatherby in Yorkshire in Britain as the holder of the world record for the longest lasting rainbow. Now, the rainbow here in Taiwan lasted for nine hours. It started at 6.57am and it finished at 3:55 p.m. on November the 30th. Now an online online rather campaign has been launched for the Guinness World Records Committee to recognize the 9-hour rainbow which appeared in the sky over the Chinese Cultural University in Taipei as the world's longest lasting rainbow. Now previously the one in Weatherby Yorkshire lasted for 6 hours. Now organizers of the petition are gathering photographs of the rainbow taken by the public in order to create a rainbow clock to prove to the Guinness World Records Committee that the rainbow was real. Now, apparently they've got on over 35,000 of these photos so far, and they're creating like a time-lapse photograph that proves how long the rainbow was around. This is quite ingenious, really, because everyone's got a smartphone now. And what was more interesting is I read a piece from a newspaper in Yorkshire that they had to admit that there wasn't much proof that their rainbow actually lasted for six hours. Scandal. They made it up. <laughs> but there you go. Isn't it lucky everyone has mobile phones now for this rainbow? Do you think it was a sign, a sign in the sky that um, the Parliament should get on with uh, pushing <laughs> through the same-sex marriage legislation? It could be. Or the DPP could have looked at it and went, "Well, we passed all these, we passed all these bills and amendments this week. We went, to, we got, we got the pot of gold from the end of the rainbow." Could be, could be. It's 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 funny that I, I learned a lot about documenting rainbows from the story. I, I had no idea before this that w- there were even world records for rainbows. It's a world record for everything. It used to be a world That's record right. for eating <laughs> baked beans, believe it or not. There you go. So, do you think Taiwan should get the record? Weatherby seems to have given up. Taiwan gets the record. And it's an ingenious idea, though, to use pictures from the public. Because, like I said, everyone has mobile phones now. It's quite interesting. It does say something about the ability to crowdsource things today. Uh, with regards to getting public attention, people always like something that puts Taiwan on the map. And so, I guess there's a sort of rainbow nationalism here. <laughs> oh, look, it's a happy story. So, yeah, give them the record. Uh, Why it's, not? It's not that happy, though, because apparently oh, no. organisers of the petition say there's a problem. Because apparently photos are a bit few and far between between the hours of 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. Because apparently, I guess was eating lunch. <laughs> no, no, that's what I thought. But no, apparently there was a relatively high position of the sun during those hours, and it made it more difficult to observe the rainbow. And the organisers of the petition say this could cast doubts over it was whether it was still there or not, whether the rainbow came, popped off for a bit, and came back. Oh. Who, well, who gets to decide these things? Ah, the Guinness World Records. But who are these people?
people and how do they how do they make this decision where where are they located and and what do they do I mean well, I, they, they, I, they, I always wonder about that myself and there are a lot of actually cases of uh, people tricking the Guinness World of World Records I used to go to Vassar College in New York and they had uh, the longest world's longest tree branch except that they had a support for the tree branch and so when the Guinness record people were coming they would remove the support and so they had the world record for the longest tree branch for so many years and it was fake so I guess they are very wary of this I, I just don't know who documents for every field given particularly how obscure some of the records are or yeah, can you mean niche. being the rain I'm the rainbow field man for Guinness World Records well how did Weatherby get it then I mean they didn't have the photos they, they, so. of course they probably wrote a letter in 1994, it would have been a letter by post, I presume, to the Okay, committee. so they, they can't prove it either. <laughs> no. So can't we just give it to Taiwan? I mean, they've had it for long enough. Yeah, anyway, we'll take it anyway. There you go. CNN <laughs> said it was true, so it must be true. <laughs> anyway, that was the show for this week here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Nicola Smith. Thanks for having me. And Brian Hugh. Good night. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.